I was actually placed on the blacklist the very day I joined Twitter. Today I sit down with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of health policy at Stanford University School of Medicine and one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration that argued for focused protection of the vulnerable instead of large-scale lockdowns. Many people that are dead today would be alive had we been allowed to make that argument. We discuss how big tech, his university, and the highest levels of the federal bureaucracy worked to silence him and other scientists. After years of destructive pandemic policies, what is the path forward? And where we are now, when there's another respiratory virus pandemic, we will lock down again, and we will use the vaccine-only strategy. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelik. Jay Bhattacharya, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. So, so good to be with you. Jay, it's been a while since we've spoken on camera, and since all sorts of evidence has come to light that the work you did around the Great Barrington Declaration, trying to talk about focused protection and this gradient in harms across age, um, that there was all sorts of elements of society. We had big tech, we had government, we had your own institution, Stanford, all kind of working to suppress some incredibly important information. Now, after having seen all this, and of course the Missouri versus Biden piece, which you know revealed all further, further information, What's your reaction at this point, having seen all of this now? I, I mean, it just makes me incredibly sad, Jan, because the, the problem is that, uh, I mean, it's one thing for me to be censored. If it was just a story about me, it'd be one thing. The, the, the problem is that we were, me and many of my colleagues, we were trying to make an argument that the public health response we were following was, in, was incredibly misguided, that it was going to lead to the harm of countless children, uh, starvation of millions of people around the world because of the economic harm from the, the lockdowns. Uh, we, we, we were arguing that, that the uh, diversion of attention from other vital medical uh, priorities was, was quite short-sighted, and that there was this alternate strategy of focused protection that was possible that could also have better protected older people from uh, the disease. If we had been allowed to make that argument cleanly, if we had not been suppressed, by the government, by the university that I work at, by or news organizations um, that basically put out propaganda, we would have won that argument, Jan. We had the better science. We had the better argument regarding the, the balance of harms. We had the better understanding of who was actually at risk of COVID. We would have won that argument and the world would have been better off. Many people that are dead today would be alive had we been allowed to make that argument. That's why, to me, it's so important to tell this story about, about suppression by the government of, of science, suppression, failure of academic institutions like my own home university of Stanford to stand up for academic freedom when it counted most. Let's start with Stanford. You've been tenured at Stanford for 15 years. I, I think you're one of the premier epidemiolo epidemiologists in the world, um, uh, and I, many people would agree with me. Um, so what happened at Stanford? So, uh, almost from the beginning of COVID, uh, I faced tremendous backlash within my own home institution from speaking up. Uh, I wrote an op-ed in March of 2020 in the Wall Street Journal, the first op-ed I'd ever written in my life, uh, and uh, it said that we don't yet know how deadly COVID is. 
just went through some evidence from the Diamond Princess data, from the NBA, and said, look, the, the disease might be much more widespread than we initially believed. And it called for a study. That was the conclusion of the piece, was to let's do a study. We already had locked down the world. It wasn't like uh, that, that, that we go back in time. It was just said, look, how, what is the empirical basis for the policies we're following? We don't even yet know how deadly the disease is. That almost immediately led to my getting death threats. I started getting messages from, from friends. Uh, one of them defriended me on Facebook eventually. I mean, it was, you know, like petty little things. But, uh, but the, the, the thing that was funny on campus was that it didn't, it didn't lead to a broader discussion. It led, it, all, all of a sudden, almost immediately, even though I'd been at the institution for, I, I mean, I've been at Stanford for 36 years, you know, 20 as a professor and 15, you said, tenure. I felt like I was on the outside immediately. Like I had been, you know, done something where I breached some norm. The term canceled comes to mind, although I guess it's not in its fullest. Uh... Yeah, it's, you know, you, you fast forward and what, what happened was that, like I wrote, I wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. So I, I work in a, in a medical school. I do health policy and infectious disease epidemiology for a living. We just put forward in the Great Barrington Declaration, October 2020, a major proposal for an alternate strategy to the central problem, policy problem facing the entire world. It generated an incredible amount of attention, both positive and negative, um, and, and, and it certainly needed to be platformed at Stanford. Platform, what I mean by platformed is, one of the main things about the life of a university is professors give talks about their ideas. It's not, it sounds so mundane and boring, and most professors that are listening are going, yeah, who cares about most of my talks? Um, but that actually is quite important, Jan. Like, I think what it does is it tells the world, look, these ideas are things that are worth discussing, that are worth paying attention to, that are worth respecting, even if you disagree with them, even if they turn out to be wrong. Um, uh, and uh, normally what would have happened when a professor at a major university makes a major proposal like that is that there would have been invitations within the home institution of the university for debate and discussion. Uh, the, instead, what happened was was essentially omerta, silence, N nothing. I started, again, still death threats from, from various uh, random sources I don't know. On campus, I started hearing mutterings of like people wanting to figure out uh, how to like deal with the, the, the J problem. Um, uh, the, the summer before, in, in, in 2020, that there had already been this attack on my colleague, Scott Atlas, who was a... Uh, an advisor to President Trump, and a hundred of my colleagues had signed a letter, which I believe was a deeply irresponsible thing to do, attacking him for things he didn't do. Like he, the letter actually said uh, that hand washing was important, somehow implying that he didn't believe in hand washing. Scott was trying to argue for focused protection of vulnerable people. He was trying to argue for opening schools. He was following the scientific evidence that that actually uh, supported all this. And that's what he was advising President Trump. All these hundred people that signed the letter didn't understand the evidence as well as Scott did. And these were colleagues of mine, people I've written papers with, people I respected. Um, I called one of them, asked him why he signed the letter. He said he hadn't taken a very close look at it. There was tremendous social pressure to sign. And even junior people who didn't have tenure were scared that if they didn't sign, well, what would happen to their tenure? That was the atmosphere at Stanford when the Great Barrington Declaration hit. I couldn't get any traction on trying to get uh, my views aired on campus. I, um, the, at one point, the former president of the university, John Hennessy, called me 
and asked me if I'd be willing to do a debate. This was in December of 2020. I was absolutely thrilled. I thought, okay, finally, uh, we have a, someone who's well-respected in the Stanford community trying to organize something close to what, uh, I mean, I don't even know if he agreed with the Great Barrington Declaration. It didn't matter, right? The matter was that there was going to be some discussion. He couldn't get anybody on the other side to sign on. And in my home department, uh, the, the, the department chair essentially sent the, sent the proposal for a d debate or a discussion off to a committee that he, knew, that he must have known was going was, was to fail. And, that, and there was no platforming. There was no uh, time when Stanford said, okay, we're going to host a discussion about this. Um, and, and I just want to emphasize why that's important. It's not because of me personally, although I personally did feel hurt. Um, it's important because if Stanford had done that, it would have been a major institution that told the world, look, this is a debate that's worth having, that people are already having, legitimate people with legitimate credentials don't agree with the, the lockdown consensus, the consensus. There wasn't a consensus, Jan. There was never a consensus. That was an illusion created by Tony Fauci, of, of just a few small number of incredibly powerful people. So now let's go to the second bit of evidence. Well, I'm gonna, let's try to tie all this in together. So I'm remembering what came out in some of the discovery in Missouri versus Biden. There were this email thread that talked about the devastating takedown of some fringe epidemiologists. So what was your reaction to that when you learned of this? Yeah, so you know, after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, four days after we wrote it, um, we learned, I learned months and months later after this happened that, that Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, wrote an email to Tony Fauci calling me, Sunetra Gupta, and Martin Kulldorff, the three primary authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, they called, they called, he, he called the three of us fringe epidemiologists. Uh, I, I actually just laughed when I heard this because, well, I, I mean, it's just funny. Um, I, still, uh, can I, I'll just jump in. Just Martin Kulldorff, Sunetra Gupta, where would you rank their sort of international stature in epidemiology? You don't have to talk about yourself, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not fit to be in their company. I mean, Martin Kulldorff is uh, the uh, uh, probably the, the, the best um, uh, biostatistician working in vaccine safety today. He designed the statistical infrastructure that the FDA and the CD uses to track vaccine safety. It's, I'd used his methods before the pandemic, even before I'd met him or knew about him. And Sunetra Gupta, she is a, the, 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 essentially the, the, the professor, of professor of theoretical epidemiology at Oxford University. Um, an incredibly brilliant mathematician, epidemiologist, uh, most recently, she was working on, just before the pandemic, on developing a universal flu vaccine, like a vaccine that you don't have to like update every year. Um, uh, just, just a, 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 an incredibly impactful uh, uh, scholar who's who's had a, a career of within the center of of epidemiology. So I just want to establish the fact that none of you are actually French. I, I mean, I have a business card somewhere that says fringe epidemiology on it, but a friend of mine sent it to me afterwards. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was, okay, just to be serious, because you're asking me this, this question seriously, it was a deeply irresponsible thing for Francis Collins to do. It was an abuse of his power, right? So he's the head of the National Institute of Health. He uh, sits on top of $45 billion of federal funding. Stanford, for instance, gets a half a billion dollars a year from the NIH. 
And not only does he control the money, uh, he also controls the social status of scientists. If you don't get NIH grants as a, as a biomedical researcher, it, it, it puts you down the, the social hierarchy within, within the, 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 the social structure of, of academic medicine. Right? I wouldn't have gotten tenure at Stanford if I had I not won NIH grants. Um, so it's, you know, to, to say that three people who are not the fringe are the fringe, why would he do that? It's because he didn't want to cope with our ideas. He didn't actually want to address the substance of our ideas. He just wanted to dismiss us, make us socially outcast. He wanted to excommunicate us from the scientific community. What's the message that, that top universities get when they hear this? Well, they don't want their social status, their brand hurt by association with fringe epidemiologists or, or fringe, fringe figures. They don't want uh, the, the possibility that maybe the funding sources will, will, that, that the NIH provides will get threatened or the social, so the social status conferred by the NIH to these institutions will get threatened. They brag about how, many, how much NIH funding they get. Um, so you, you have a federal government figure abusing his power. Why? Because he couldn't stand the idea there were prominent scientists that disagreed with him about pandemic policy. That's why he called for a devastating takedown of the premises. The, uh, and the best, at, the, at least initially, they could do was essentially, you know, tangentious articles in like Wired magazine or something, right? The substantive counterattack didn't exist. When there was finally started to be a substantive counterattack to the Great Barrington Declaration, it came in the form of of, of pieces in like prominent scientific journals, but with ridiculous scientific arguments. Arguments like, we don't know if there's any immunity after infection, right? So there was a memorandum called the John Snow Memorandum, signed by some very prominent people, including the current CDC director, who, who, wrote, who signed her name to that in October of 2020, in November of 2020. And just very briefly, why is that? Why was the John Snow Memorandum problematic? It misread the science. It said, for instance, that there is no evidence, of, that, that you can't know for certain that, that uh, there is immunity after protecting it, it. It acknowledged that there were some lockdown harms, but downplayed them a and pretended as if they were inevitable, as if the lockdown were the only inevitable choice to make. And so all of the harms that came from them were just downstream from this inevitable decision, as opposed to like a thing that we decided to do. And then it dismissed the possibility of focus protection essentially sending a signal to the public health community, don't even try. The lockdowns will protect old people. That should be enough. But the result of it was essentially a corruption of the scientific process, a corruption of major institutions, governments, universities, scientific, top scientific journals, in service of a policy that had everyone now, almost everyone now agrees was entirely ineffective. I mean, even by the standards of COVID deaths alone, how many millions have died? Did the policy work? And ignored the, the and, 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 and essentially ignored the possibility there would have been alternate policy available, which there was. Let's jump to something a little more recent. You know, is your um, realization in one of the earliest drops, as they call them, of the Twitter files, that you had been identified as someone to be shadow banned and that there was this public-private collaboration to make that happen? What was your reaction? So I, I joined Twitter in, in August of 2021. I only joined for one purpose, and I figured I needed to make a very public case 
for the, the, the ideas in the Great Barrington Declaration for, for sane public health. Just writing scientific papers alone wasn't, wasn't, moving, um, wasn't moving people within the scientific community. And it was also clear to me that um, it was the public that had been most harmed by these lockdown policies, our kids out of school, uh, you know, poor poor people decimated by COVID and and and, and, and like uh, you know their, their their ability to like make a living and feed their family, uh, working class people. Um, so I thought, what we needed, to, what I wanted to do is I wanted to tell the public that there was this alternate policy. The purpose of joining Twitter was to reach people that hadn't heard my message, that maybe disagreed with me, and so I could I could put the evidence that I had in front of them, the arguments that I had in front of them. Um, Twitter has. You know, you, you have your followers, you can send your message, and, the, and generally the followers will see it. Not always, but generally. Um, sometimes, though, the posts go viral. They trend in the, in the language of Twitter. So that the broader Twitter community, the millions and millions of other people that, have, that read Twitter, also see those messages from time to time. Not every message, but from time to time. Um, when Barry Weiss wrote that piece about the Twitter files, and she put me in the, in the top of it, what she, what she revealed was that I had been placed on a trends blacklist. I love that term, Jan. It's, uh, it's like, it reminds me of like, you know, the McCarthy era, the 1950s or something. I mean, actually, well, that's, what, that's what this era feels like. It's like strange suppression of dissidents by, by you know, a government so sure that it's, that it's right that it felt okay to do that. Um, so the, the trends blacklist made sure that whenever I did a tweet, the broader Twitter audience wouldn't see it. I felt like I was reaching an audience because I had the 100,000 followers, but I didn't know it was that I had no chance of actually accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish by going on Twitter, which is to tell the broader public that there was something deeply wrong with the COVID policy. Um, I got invited to go visit with, with Elon Musk um, as a result of this Twitter files revelation. And what I found out during my visit there at Twitter headquarters is that I was actually placed on the blacklist the very day I joined Twitter. Why was that? Why did that happen? It's not Twitter 1.0 on its own decided that. That came about because government actors were involved at the highest levels of, of, of federal bureaucracy telling social media companies what ideas to censor and who to censor. The, the first post I did on Twitter was, uh, I think the, maybe the first or second post I did on Twitter was the Great Barrington Declaration. Still my pinned tweet, you can go see it. Um, and that is what led to the blacklist. What do you make of this type of collaboration? Or is it a collaboration even in your mind of the highest level of government and you know, big tech, I'll use, because you know, we, we've seen from Missouri versus Biden now also that it wasn't just Twitter doing this type of activity. There needs to be a bright wall of separation because there's a power imbalance. Okay, so you read the emails from Missouri versus Biden, the, the, the deposition testimony, the, 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 the FOIA, the, all, all the discovery emails, and it looks like there's this collaborative buddy-buddy relationship. The government says, these are the people to censor, these are the ideas to censor, and, and, the, and Twitter says, or you know, whatever, social media companies say, oh, great, let's, let's, we want to help you do this. It looks like a collaborative relationship. But at its heart, it cannot possibly be a collaborative relationship because the government telling these companies do this is, has an implied threat underneath it. The government regulates these companies. The government has tremendous powers to make these companies succeed or fail. 
And so when it does these kinds of instructions, it's, it says, look, if you, do, if you don't do this, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, the implied threat is we're going to destroy your company. Normally, the, the U.S. Uh, Constitution would protect against these kinds of things. It's, I thought it was built into the, the very fabric of our government agencies that, that this would be something so far out of bounds they wouldn't do it. It's one thing if you have, you know, like the like the government tell say, okay, this guy, we we this guy is a international criminal terrorist, right? You know, the, the, and you can understand how there may need to be some kind of line of communication around that. But the line between that and suppressing scientific discussion, suppressing policy discussion, is should have been a bright red line that should never have crossed. And the government agencies essentially decided to treat scientific debate on COVID policy as if it were, the, and the dissidents around who were, who were on the other side of the government, as if they were just like those international terrorists in, in some sense. They, they, they thought it was okay to suppress those kinds, of, those kinds of people, those kinds of ideas. As an American citizen, I don't think that it's, it's right for the American government to have that kind of power. The basic fundamental American norm is free speech. And I understand there are nuances around exactly what that means. Free speech is not the freedom to reach everybody. Um, but at, at the very heart is allow, like permitting a space for f debate to take place among scientists and policymakers and, 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 and concerned members of the public on vital policy issues, the government decided through its actions that they didn't want to let that happen during the pandemic. And, and, and again, as a result, it's, it's, not about, it's really not about me. It's about the, the, the fact that we would have won this debate about lockdown policy and so many people that were harmed wouldn't have been harmed. These vaccine mandates wouldn't have been in place. People wouldn't have lost their jobs or careers over them. Uh, the schools would have opened earlier. The panic mongering would have been, been, been addressed, so the, the, so the anxiety and depression problems we're seeing might have, might have been less. And the economic devastation from the lockdown policies would have been, might have been avoided, to, at least to some degree. Um, all of these consequences, what, what the, the conclusion I take away from that is that this censorship activity killed people. The First Amendment, ironically, during the pandemic, we, we heard all these things like we can't have, we can't have free speech during a pandemic. The, 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 the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Ironically, the reality is that the First Amendment would have, if it had been, had it been actually in place during the pandemic, would have saved lives, would have led to less damage, less destruction, fewer people dead. And just from the sorts of numbers I've seen, roughly, I think by a considerable margin, Right. I don't know if you. Yeah, I mean, there's no question, right? So, like, just just take the damage to to poor people around the world. So, there was an estimate that uh, the World Bank put out that 100 million additional people, as a consequence of the economic dislocation caused by just the early lockdowns, um, 100 million additional people around the world were thrown into dire poverty, less than two dollars a day of income or less, and many of those people starved. Many of them didn't send their kids to school. Actually, in, in poor countries, they, they, they put their kids to work, pulled their kids out of school entirely. In Uganda is a good example of this. Four and a half million kids never came back to school after two years of school out, left. 
a lot of them, especially the young girls, were put in, sold into sexual slavery because the families couldn't feed them. When you take an action as dramatic as, as, as a lockdown, you set in, in motion a whole sort of domino set, set of effects where the, you know, you talk about supply chains, the pointy end of a supply chain is some, some poor person in some poor country uh, that's reorganized its economy to fit into the global economy, um, loses his job, can't feed his family, and then he has to make a choice between, a terrible choice between starving and doing and, and, and exploiting his kids so that they can they, they so they don't starve. Um, I mean, you just you, these are the kinds of things that policymakers really need to be thinking about when they make these decisions. And we didn't think about them, and we didn't think about them because uh, the people that would have brought them up were being suppressed. You know, you wrote this piece about in Tablet about you know what happened at Stanford. You mentioned suicidal ideation, you mentioned just, you know, people not getting their medical checkups. You know, ostensibly the lockdowns were to prevent hospital overrun, but the hospitals were actually empty, right? Not all of them, but, but more so than normal. It was a kind of cataclysmic social intervention that, as you say, you know, had these very, very far-reaching uh, we're going to be paying for them for, for a very long time. Like our, the kids that were out of school for a short time, let's just say in the United States, some, some kids that were out of school for a month, not just a short time, but a very long time. That, there's a social science literature that precedes the pandemic that's, that um, in that social science literature what, found, what, what it found is that even short interruptions to kids' schooling has long-term consequences for the kids. Uh, they, they end up uh, being poorer as adults more likely to have chronic illness, and they live shorter lives. And it's not equally distributed, right? It's the poor kids that suffer the most from this because there's no, there's no making it up or less, less, less of making it up. It's a generational driver of inequality that we created during the pandemic. So you're involved in a number of efforts now to try to rectify some of these things. And we started with these lockdowns, then it went to various types of mandates and then, you know, there's a whole now discussion of, you know, was the, were these vaccines rolled out too quickly? What exactly happened? What are the incentive structures with big pharma? You're involved in numerous groups that are trying to kind of wrestle with this. So for one example, you know, we've covered this recently is the Norfolk group. A whole series of uh, recommendations on like what questions to ask to figure out what really happened. That, that, that's how I read it. So I, just briefly tell me about that. And uh, you know what should we do now with this reality? Yeah. So there, there have been um, a number of uh, attempts to try to do an after-action report about the pandemic um, by you know so like the Democratic House, for instance, conducted one. There have been a, a, a couple of other you know COVID commissions where they, uh, which like the 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 idea around it is a good one in the sense that. Uh, after natural disasters, after plane crashes, after after like terrible things, you come after you know a patient dies in a hospital. You come together, the experts that are that are involved, sometimes outside experts, and you do an honest assessment of what went wrong, with the goal of reforming the processes so that it doesn't happen again. The problem is that these 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 after action reports have been conducted by people who were all who were made the decisions in favor of the lockdowns. And they, as a result, they have not asked the critical questions that need to get asked to really do an honest after-action report, right? So for instance, 
why was uh, the immunity after COVID infection ignored in basic decision making? The science was really clear in 2020. Uh, why, what was the, the, uh, the, the, the forecasting models that were used to, to justify lockdown? There were a lot of evidence that, that, that those models were deeply inaccurate even at the time. Why was that evidence not ignored? Why, was there, why were the schools closed for such a long time when the evidence from around the world, especially in Europe, was showing that it, that, that the, that it wasn't necessary? I'll, I'll, I'll add one. Why was vaccination chosen as the one route to solving the problem when you had a highly mutable, highly mutating type of virus where the vaccines would have been outdated at the outset? And we, this was known, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the, 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 uh, the way I would phrase that question or put the, frame that question, I'd say, why did people think that vaccination would lead to permanent protection against infection when there wasn't evidence from the randomized trials that that was true. Um, you know, so, so there are, there are the, both scientific questions and policy questions. Why were lockdown harms not considered? Normally, when you take an action at regulatory agencies, you have to do a, a, a benefit-harm kind of calculation. You can't just pretend like there's only benefits, um, especially for policy like lockdowns, which are almost certain to cause deep harm. Uh, if, if you don't consider the lockdown harms, then, of course, you can't consider how to mitigate them. Um, so I think th these questions have to get asked, and, and any honest COVID in inquiry will ask those questions. Um, it's it's a question. It's, it's not. It may be a question of who, but the emphasis is, is on the uh, on the what to me. What and why. If we answer those what and why questions, we will uh, uh, we will be in a much better position to make reforms so that the disaster of the lockdowns where nearly every prominent institution in the world that should have protected us against it failed. That disaster won't be repeated. Um, but if we don't ask those questions, Jan, it will be repeated. Because what's, what's happened in the, the, the commissions have already come up, they've, they've just whitewashed it. They've whitewashed the, the lockdowns. Um, and they have institutionalized the lockdown strategy as the strategy that they will follow in future pandemics. That's, that's where we are currently. It's not, it's not a, a theoretical matter. These, these uh, institutions, in order, I think, mainly to avoid embarrassment to themselves, have said that they did a good job um, without ever asking the critical questions what, that might have led to people concluding that, that they didn't do a good job. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I, now, the questions that we put in the Norfolk Group document, there may be good answers to them. Right? There may be answers where you say, okay, yeah, they did a good job on this. You can understand why they did that. Um, but if you don't ask those questions, you can't get good answers. Um, and you can't get good reform, you can't get good policy. And where we are now, when there's another respiratory virus pandemic, we will lock down again. And we will use the vaccine-only strategy. The Biden administration actually put out a, 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 a policy idea where uh, the goal will be in the next pandemic to get a vaccine in 130 days. There's a few things about that. If you uh, are aiming at a, a vaccine in 130 days, what that means is you, you can't test the vaccine for very long, maybe one month, you, you probably can't recruit very many people. So you're gonna like approve a vaccine in 130 days and recommend it at scale on pretty inadequate testing. Um, what are you gonna do for those 130 days? There's this deadly disease going around, at least, at least that's what the, uh, the, the authorities will say. 
and there's this promise that the science is going to produce a vaccine in 130 days, what we'll do is we'll lock down for four months in anticipation of the vaccine. The de facto policy for respiratory virus pandemics now and going forward into the future is the policy that we followed, the disastrous policy that didn't protect us against COVID, that led to all the lockdown arms. That is the, the, the current policy of the United States, and I think is the current policy of many countries around the world. Um, and unless there's an honest discussion, an honest commission that actually asks the hard questions, which is what the Norfolk Group document is, is, aim, is, is providing an agenda for what those questions might be. There's, you know, of course, there's going to be more. Um, we welcome more. Uh, it's going to happen again. You know, on the vaccine side, you even have Dr. Anthony Fauci basically saying that these things don't work very well now. I mean, after all of this, right? What was your response to that? So I think, I think you're referring to an article that he published recently um, where he talked about mucosal immunity versus, Correct. versus uh, 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 so mucosal immunity would be like you, you, you have, um, not to get te overly technical, but like the, there are uh, immune mechanisms that, that are like in your nose where you're generally you're first exposed to these viruses that are effective at like neutralizing them. And then there's like the immunity that, that you're, the, you know, through all of your body um, with different sort of mechanisms of, of protecting you. Um, the, the vaccine that we used for the pandemic relied on your systemic immunity, the, the immunity in your body, as opposed to the, the mucosal immunity in your nose. Not, again, not to be overly technical. Um, the article that he wrote, if I understand it correctly, was, was making an argument that mucosal immunity was, would be potentially more effective for respiratory viruses than systemic immunity that, uh, that, that we use for the, for the, the, the vaccines. I can understand some uncertainty around that. Like it's not, it's not like, uh, the, to me, the science is, it seems pretty, pretty clear that, that that would be the case, but it, may, it might be difficult to get, have a vaccine produced that can stimulate your mucosal immunity that would work. There may be technical problems with, with that. And so you can still understand a strategy of trying to do systemic immunity. What I can't understand is that Tony Fauci, through much of 2021, and even in 2020, was essentially promising that the vaccines that we developed, the vaccines as developed, would neutralize the disease, would protect you against getting sick and spreading the disease. And on the basis of that idea, idea that he couldn't possibly have known was true, and in fact, in retrospect, turned out to be false, he recommended vaccine passports, he recommended vaccine, vaccine mandates, because if you, if you have uh, you know, 80% of the population with a sterilizing vaccine, um, you know, it's above the herd immunity threshold and it's permanent, you can really pretty much get, the disease will go down to very, very low levels. You don't have to worry about it ever again. That was the logic he had, but that logic was premised on something he could not possibly know was true. And it's funny to see him write this article now where he's, I mean, in, in a way, uh, indirectly questioning the premise of the policy recommendations he made to two presidents. Um, and on the, on the basis of those policy recommendations, so many people lost their jobs, so many people felt discriminated against, so many people lost confidence in public health, which promised essentially a, 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 a prevention, like in, 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 almost an eradication of COVID through the vaccine that was never, ever going to be possible. Well, and, and I believe we, we also learned wasn't even tested for by the manufacturers, if I recall some of the you know, Pfizer yeah, the official testimonies. Trials. They didn't, they didn't um, look for, 
I mean, the randomized trials, so what they did is, it, is uh, you know, they recruited a lot of patients. Uh, I, I wish they'd recruited more older people. They could have had two, one of two clinical endpoints that would have been useful epidemiologically. They could have checked for prevention of severe disease. That would have been really useful because then you can use the vaccine for focused protection if you prove that it protects against severe disease. Um, or they could have checked for prevention of infection. They didn't check for either of the two. What they checked for is prevention of symptomatic infection. So, and they did this for about two months, and they found 95% efficacy against symptomatic infection. Well, if you prevent symptomatic infection, I reasoned when I saw that evidence, it's likely you prevent severe disease. You can't get severe disease without a symptomatic infection. And so Sunetra Gupta and I wrote an article in December of 2020 arguing for using the vaccine for focused protection of older people. Uh, the, the argument was essentially a balance of risks. We don't know all the side effects of the vaccine, but we do know that, oh, that COVID is a very deadly disease for older people. So if you reduce the risk of severe disease and death, it's on balance. It's it was a cost-benefit analysis that might have, right. Um, for younger people, it's, it's much less important because the harm of COVID is much less. Uh, but Tony Fauci, Rochelle Walensky, Debbie Burks, and many others looked at the same evidence, prevention of symptomatic disease, and assumed that that meant that it also prevented all infection and also prevented transmission. Well, that's a logical leap that's just false. Like, you can't make that logical leap even in December of 2020. And yet they made that logical leap. They, they premised their policies recommendations, the, the vaccine passports, the, the, the mandates, the coercion, um, and, and also the, 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 the gaslighting of people who are actually vaccine injured, all on this idea that we have to get a sufficient fraction of the population vaccinated for the disease to go away. And um, the problem was, not only was it not justified at the time on the basis of the Pfizer trial, it turned out ex post that it was false. It was so many countries, even in like late spring, early summer 2021, that were heavily vaccinated saw huge numbers of cases. The vaccine wasn't stopping transmission. It was very clear from that. And then rather than back down and say, look, let's use this for focus protection, they doubled down on it and, and recommended more vaccine mandates, more um, requirements that young men get, uh, young and women in college get vaccinated. Uh, when the evidence never supported the need for those folks to get vaccinated or for the disease to go away. And I just have to touch on this too. There's these new kind of the newer bivalent vaccines, which even have less evidence of, you know, around whether it's be safety or even if efficacy in any way from what I can tell. And yeah. So it, it just, what do you make of this? I, I, so after the, after the big trials, at least the big trials, you can, you can see they were trying to be responsible, the, the trials in 2020. They were trying to like do a real serious question, a, a, a study to check whether the, the vaccines had the effect they wanted. To, like they recruited tens of thousands of people. For the boosters, they made an assumption that if, if some booster induces you to get antibodies in your blood, well, it's probably going to have some good effect. But they don't know that. How do they, 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 now in the flu we do that. And there's some reason, it's called immune bridging. The idea is that if in the flu vaccines, if you, if you uh, the flu vaccine produces antibodies that, that, are, that are good against the current circulating flu in you know, test, test subjects, 
then that means that it'll protect you against severe disease from the flu, maybe even infection from the flu. Now, that's an assumption that we don't know that for certain, but in the flu, there's a lot more evidence going back decades that it might, that might be a reasonable thing. Here you have a new vaccine, a disease that's not the flu, and they made that assumption that you could use this immune bridging idea. I just test the bivalent booster, the new, new, new version of the vaccine, see if it produces antibodies, and if it produces antibodies, I can assume this can protect you against severe disease and death, protect you against transmitting disease. Essentially, the evidence-based standards on which we would normally decide whether to approve of these, these updates were, were, were you know, essentially gutted by the FDA uh, when, they, when they did this. And you can see what happened. Like, there's almost no uptake of these bivalent boosters. Uh, so, so people are, there's some awareness, too, of this, this reality. Yeah, I mean, like, one of the, one of the uh, meetings where they approve the bivalent boosters use, they actually, the, the, the presentation that, that, the, that the expert committees at the, uh, the CDC, I think, had saw was based on eight mice or some, some small number of mice rather than humans at all. If I were on that committee, I would have demanded that the, that the manufacturers produce human evidence with a real meaningful clinical endpoint. If you ask them to run a randomized trial and we won't approve the, uh, the, the vaccine unless you run one, um, they would have run one. It's a failure of the regulators there. That's a, one of the questions, by the way, in the Norfolk document. Why? Well, just so, you know, as we're talking here, um, and I, I want to go back, get back to a few, some of these um, groups that you're participating in to try to assess all this. But it's almost like, you know, it's like it got worse somehow. Like you, what, what didn't work was doubled down on. And then the standards were lowered subsequently, which just, it strains all credulity, and in, you know, just out in the open. <laughs> I do. Does it? Does this make any sense to you at all? It's the power of groupthink, married to power. Right. So you have a, a relatively small number of very powerful uh, science bureaucrats who surround themselves with people that 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 won't tell them that they're gone wrong. I mean, that's why that fringe epidemiology thing is so telling, right? So the, the idea that, uh, that you have these outside experts telling you you're wrong, well, they must be fringe because our group thinks it's right, right? They, they, they thought they were right. That's the danger, Jan. They thought they were so right that they could exclude outside, outside voices. And the doubling down, as the evidence starts getting worse and worse in, 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 that, that you, about, about the policy you suggested, that your ideas, uh, your reading of the science is wrong, it's very difficult for powerful people to say, yeah, we got it wrong and change their minds. I've seen a few, but it's very, very rare that that happens. And the scientific establishment, especially the, the scientific bureaucracies in the World Health Organization, in the, in the, in the US, US government, and many other places, they, uh, they just dug their heels in and doubled down exactly the way you said. You know, on the one side, there's this censorship and there's this, you know, shadow banning or, you know, basically your inability to be on the trends list and this kind of thing. But on the other hand, you know, what, what that creates is effectively this ability to shape the illusion of consensus. I mean, it, it nev I never grasped how powerful these tools were. In 1500, if you, in Europe, if you wanted to know the truth, you, you would look to your priests. 
there'd be these trusted centers of authority that could that would tell you, you know, here's what's true, here's what's false. Uh, and the, those those centers of authority were rooted in the Christian religion. Um, uh, when they when those trusted centers of authority went outside of the outside of the real expertise, they they got things very very wrong. Right. So the persecution of Galileo is a good example of this. Um, in the modern world, the the analogy of the of the of the Christian clerisy then is the scientific bureaucracy the, and scientists. Like if you want to know what's true and false, well, you follow the science. But science isn't like that, right? So science is complicated. At, at its heart, there's this deep humility that we're, we're up against this, this, uh, our ignorance about how the world actually works. And so there's this method to try to like develop it. Um, at the same time, so, but, so you have this, like met, this humble method that's trying to s slowly expand our knowledge about the way the world, the physical world works. Um, same time, you have the p tremendous power for being at the top of this clerisy that can that can distinguish true from false, inerringly, and if and uh, and then based on that, policy gets made. Right, so people people get excluded from society because they have an idea that's out out of sorts with what the what the supposed consensus is. Um, it's the same problem that the that the Middle Ages faced. You have a, a high priest, a, a clerisy, that's divorced itself from the actual scientific method that gives its power, opining in places and making decisions in places that they don't actually know what's true or false. Um, but in the minds of many many people who don't know how to read science, which is not, I mean, it's not like like you know, like infectious disease epidemiology. It's a complicated subject. It's just—it's not surprising that so many people don't know how to read. It's not, that's not their, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that you have someone like Tony Fauci going around on TV, you know, in, in, his, in a sort of avuncular way, uh, conveying to the world that he is some knowledgeable guru who can tell the difference between true and false unerringly, even when he changes his mind f five minutes later, even though it's not the, the things that he's saying is not connected to actual science. Um, it has a tremendous influence on the minds of people, and um, we have to like figure out systems to allow that to to uh, to to not happen. Well, when but so now what you just described that married to a structure that is our public square, which is big tech, that says this voice will be amplified and the other voices will be hidden without even realize without even you realizing because you thought you you thought hey people are reading. Right, and as as many of us did. Yeah, I think I think um, so. You you put your your finger on the key mechanism to to guard against what we went through. The key mechanism is is allowing a very large, diverse set of voices to be heard. To to not allowing government power to render scientists that disagree with government to the fringe. Permitting dissent, the, the the scientific process involves debate and discussion, right? So I have a hypothesis; uh, it has some implications about what I expect to see in the data. You have a different hypothesis; you expect different things in the data. We don't fight. What we do is we go collect data and evidence and, and run experiments. And the basis of that, okay, the, the experiment came out the way you predicted, not me. Well, now your hypothesis is is more likely to be true than mine.
well, maybe someone else will come along and have a different idea about what's going on with implications that you didn't think about, and now you run experiments. It's a conversation. It's a debate. It's a discussion. It often gets very heated because people are very attached to the way they think about the world, but that's fine, right? You want that debate and discussion. Now, of course, there's a whole range of scientific topics. You know, the Earth is round. There really isn't a debate. Um, and people who say the Earth is flat, you can pretty much dismiss them because there's a tremendous evidence the Earth is round. You don't need to, you don't have to refight that fight over and over again. But on the most important scientific matters, things where, where it's not known what's, tr what's true and false yet, because we're still in the midst of our ignorance over, over, over it, um, you have to have that debate. On the, on the edge of scientific discussion, uh, of scientific knowledge, is controversy, is, is debate. And if you don't allow that process to happen, science is dead. So you're on, you know, in Florida, for example. Um, you know, you, we, we first met when, when you were uh, advising Governor DeSantis. Um, you, you've joined a new commission that he has commissioned. Um, and maybe sort of tell me about that, how it works, what it hopes to accomplish, and it, can this be replicated? It's a public health integrity committee or commission. Um, the, uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was started in December of 2022. There's a, a, a number of very prominent epidemiologists on it, including Martin Kulldorff, uh, Christine Stable-Ben from Denmark, uh, Tracy Beth Hogue, uh, of course, Joe Ladipo, uh, the, the Surgeon General of Florida, um, and, and some other folks. The goal of the, the committee is essentially to, to provide a second opinion when the CDC gets something wrong, uh, it's something you know. Sometimes they'll get, they get things right, and we'll 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 say it. But the goal now we're still starting to like figure out how this is going to work. So it's not all completely set up yet, and it's been a, you know it's been a few months, and we're still still just just a few months. We're still learning how to how how the process is going to work. But the but the ultimate aim is to to say, look, uh, here's the, the CDC says X. Here's here's our scientific view of it. Actually, what I would love to have happen is why just us? This should happen all over the country. Every state should have their own. Um, own uh, second opinion of CDC po uh, policy and, and decision making. It's not like the CDC is some oracular power that knows knows best and can tell distinguish true from false. Let's have a lot of voices. Let's have Let's have those commissions all over the country, all over the world. Let's have let's set up a, a institutional structure where um, you're you are allowed to contradict the CDC when they get it wrong. You know, I, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I'd had this idea, and I still have this idea. There's there are things that public health can do that where where that that are really quite good, right? Um, and if you contradict them, you're you're committing, a, especially with some authority, you're committing a sinful act, right? So if I go and tell you, Jan, that smoking is good for you, as a professor of Stanford University School of Medicine, I've committed a sin, right? People may listen to me. Smoke, by the way, folks, smoking is bad for you. Um, really bad for you. Don't do it if you can. Um, if, if you, if, but I've committed a sin if I tell you to do it, that, 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 that it might be okay. I, by contradicting public health orders, I might actually convince some people that to do things that, are, that everyone believes are dangerous. Okay. Let me just jump in for one sec. But what you really should do, and this is, this is what really only dawned on me after going through these last few years, is you should, as a doctor or public health official, tell me what the cost benefit is here. Maybe I really like smoking and I'm ready to take the risk of the, the cancer because it doesn't mean I'm going to get cancer, lung cancer. It just means my risk is higher. 
Yeah. Right? I mean, that's right. So, I mean, that, but that, I, I agree with that. You know, I think, I think the, the, the public health works best when we reason with people. We don't force people to, to, to do things. We tell people, here's, here's what the evidence says. Here's where it's strong. Here's where it's weak. We, we, and we're, now, we have to do it in a way that's like, I mean, a lot of the material is technical. So I want to be able to connect with people without getting deep into the weeds of techni technical stuff, but also being true to the technical stuff. Right? Uh, that kind of public health communication, when it's effective, is really, really powerful because it's persuasive in a way that, that, uh, that doesn't sort of run roughshod over your autonomy. Right? You're not just listening to me because of my authority. You're listening to me because I provided you with evidence that convinces you that, you, if, that this is the right thing to do. And yeah, if you listen to the evidence, you understand it, and you say, okay, well, I've got to smoke. Um, I mean, I'm not going to approve of it, but you know, I, I can. I, I'm not going to. I'm also not going to force you to to to, to uh, you know not listen to me. I guess this, this is what I'm getting at. I feel like there's been kind of a shorthand taken, right? When you by not tell, I'm just using smoking because I I don't smoke myself. I don't like it. I think it's frankly disgusting, right? What I'm, what I'm saying is that that by telling people this is smoking's bad, right? Like, but, but attaching this moral veneer, this is just bad. That, that's shorthand. That's easy. That'll probably, it'll reduce the number of deaths and so forth. But you're not actually telling people, to telling someone the truth of the situation, right? But you're not giving them the evidence, the evidence, uh, reasoned response. And maybe it's because you think that they can't, they're not smart enough to really deal with the reality. Maybe they'll make the wrong choice because the right choice is for them to not smoke. This is the mentality, I think that we've seen. You've, you've right. absolutely nailed it, right? So the right way to communicate smoking is bad for you is by telling them why it's bad for you. Here's what the evidence is. Like there's, there's all this evidence that your rate of lung cancer will go up, you know, whatever the, whatever the, 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 the fraction is that, that uh, people are uh, looked at in scientific studies. Um, here's the rate of heart, heart disease. Here's the rate of, you know, all these, all these malign events. Um, and you can, you can say it honestly, like it's, are, you, are you certain to get all of these? No. Um, but you've raised your risk of these things. And then let people make their own decision. I think that will be much more effective uh, in the long run than uh, a, a, where you, you make some pronouncement. The vaccine, if you get the, vac the COVID vaccine, you, you will not get COVID. You will not pass COVID on. It turns out to be false. Now all of a sudden, who's going to believe the person that said that? Um, the, the only real way for public health to be effective is to treat other, the people that, that, we, that, 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 that they're supposed to represent, the people they're supposed to help as adults, reasoning adults with moral autonomy, n not as essentially like chattel or children to be, to be manipulated or nudged or, 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 or made to do exactly what public health wants, wants them to do. Um, and, uh, and I think... Uh, uh, the responsibility for public health officials is to convey the science as it is, as honestly as possible. When there's uncertainty in the science, when there isn't a consensus, don't lie and say there is one. And when there actually is a consensus, like smoking causes lung cancer, convey that. And the problem during the pandemic is that public health abdicated responsibility to convey scientific ideas, ideas about benefit and harm, in a reasonable way, they treated people like children, as opposed to treating people like like adults and reasoning with them. So, where are we at today? 
Well, we have to, um, I think right now the policy situation is actually quite grim. Like I think most of the world, uh, what public health has looked at lockdowns, I mean, I think most, most people have moved on, right? Most, the, 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 the compliance, the fear, a lot of that is just, you know, dissolved away. You, you, uh, and so people think mostly that COVID is, is, is over in one sense or not, at least as far as their own lives are concerned. Um, they don't view it as the same kind of concern that they did in March 2020. Uh, at the same time, the governments have, have essentially institutionalized this po these policies. Like we haven't firmly repudiated them. And so we're in actually quite a dangerous place because, as I said, if there's another respiratory virus pandemic, it'll happen again. The, the, the legal authorities, the regulatory sort of precedent, the... Um, the, the, the fact that this, this power exists to impose the lockdowns is now institutionally part of government. And a lot of like the, the assessments have been, you know, they've been whitewashes of what happened. There's this disconnect that needs to get fixed. Right? I don't believe if the people actually knew how unnecessary the lockdowns were that they would ever want them again. If they, if, if, if they understand, now mo many, many people felt the harms of the lockdowns themselves, so they feel it deeply, but they can't articulate exactly what went wrong or why it was unnecessary. So we, ha we have to like have an honest, and I, I would hope that it'd be bipartisan. Like I don't, I don't see any reason why it needs to be inherently political. Because um, it's a failure of public health in my view. Public health isn't supposed to be democratic or republican. It's just supposed to be public health, right? So we, the polity, you know, uh, uh, has a responsibility to do the assessment, I think, in a bipartisan way of public health, which is supposed to serve the polity. Um, and I think that's where we are now. We are in a situation where um, people f feel like it's over. There's a lot of relief. In, 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 you know, of course, COVID is still floating around. It'll be here forever in that sense. Not, so it's not over in that sense. But the danger it poses is gone. We don't want the, the disruptions to continue on anymore um, in our lives. Public health wants to, and public health authorities want to take a victory lap. They can't really, they, but they can, they can whitewash their sins. Um, and, and so that's, that's the situation I think we find ourselves currently. I, I have to stress this. I mean, I find it difficult to find a single policy that was good. I mean, there, I'm, I'm sure there is one, but in these large, you know, very socially impactful decisions across the board, I find it very difficult, talking to many experts, to find anything that was substantive. Like, it feels like it, the entire thing needs a reworking. I mean, you can point to some focus protection, like there were, there, there, there were some, um, some cities, uh, like in Germany I saw, some city that had organized taxi rides for, um, free taxi rides for older people uh, to go to the grocery or whatever. Uh, there was an attempt to like deliver food to, to, uh, to, to, to older people in their homes. Um, Governor DeSantis actually had this great idea for a policy where, where you know, there was this, this therapy called monoclonal antibodies. And you, had to go, you have to get it out for your IV. Normally you'd have to go to the hospital to get it. He organized it. Uh, uh, the so infusion people, sites. Yeah. And so people, right. they could actually just call and then the infusion site would come to them in their home for older people and vulnerable people. I mean, there, there were some good policies. All the policies that focused on protecting older people in ways that didn't destroy their autonomy 
um, I think were actually quite quite good. I mean, there's there's nothing. It's not to say that they were everything we did was wrong. I, I don't agree with that. But I think that so much that we did was wrong. So much that we did with, in the name of public health is unethical. And so much that we did in, in the name of public health was so destructive. Um, you have to have an honest assessment or else no one's ever going to, the public's never going to trust public health again. The public health isn't going to deserve that. And yet the, the government power to enforce public health ideas is going to remain in place. It's a recipe for disaster. Unfortunately, in a number of recent interviews, you know, we've been exposing very convincingly very foundational problems in different societal structures. In this case, you know, we're more focused on public health. It can leave, you know, people who are watching, who are just realizing, you know, frankly, really distraught and to some extent kind of hopeless because you know, how, how can it be that given that, you know, like you said, mostly things went wrong, people are still, some leadership's patting itself on the back and pushing more. What do you see the best path forward for the typical person in this sort of, faced with this sort of reality? I, I mean, I think uh, there, there's going to be an honest assessment whether, whether the leaders of public health want it or not. Too many people have been hurt. And too many people sensed that, that there was there was huge, huge mistakes at the very least, if you want to call them that, mis made. Um, so there's going to be an assessment. The question is only is like the form of it. And for for, for folks at at, at home, um, what can you do? Like you can ask your school leaders, what what was that two years of school closure about? What are you doing to like address the the gaps in knowledge that happened, right? So, or uh, uh, you you can go to the nursing home where you're. Where your mom or dad is, and say, "Well, look, uh, why, why didn't you let uh, you know when, when when they were depressed? Let me move, c c come and come and say hi, right? Why didn't you like try to figure out some safe ways to like allow allow humane treatment? Why you go to the hospital where your parents, one of your parents died, and say, "Look, why didn't you let me say goodbye?" Right? You can push your elected leaders for uh, reform so that things like that never happen again, right? So you, there's you know things that happened to you during the lockdown that were bad. During the, the, during the last two and a half years, as a result of the lockdown policies, the, as a result of the fear-mongering, you can constructively use that, that hurt to, uh, to push leaders to acknowledge the harm and, and reform. And I, that's, why, that's really the source of my hope, is all these people that were hurt, all, all the, the populace at large, is coming to understand that what, what happened wasn't necessary and we can do better. Um, and I, I very, in my, my deepest of hearts, believe that that will happen if we, if, if we can just get the agenda in front of the, of, of front of the people, say, here are the questions to ask your leaders, and to actually ask for new leadership in, the, in those institutions that failed. I think that can happen. I think that will happen. I think it's inevitable that it will happen. Uh, the only question is, um, how, can we, how can we help the process along, make it as constructive as possible? Uh, I'm not. I'm not interested in Nuremberg 2.0. I think that's tremendously destructive. What I'm interested in is deep institutional reform, and I think that um, this is still in the United States a country that responds to people, that's driven by the people. It's for the government is for the people, the government is by the people. I, I still. It sounds as corny as it sounds. I think it's still true. Um, we just need to ha give the people a voice and a set of set of questions to ask, and that's what I hope to be able to do. 
Well, Jay Bhattacharya, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jan. That was so much fun. Thank you all for joining Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Thank you.